Pushing Back Chaos with Mel and Mike and Raph. Welcome back to another episode of Pushing Back Chaos. Me, Paul Mellon McFadden. I am here with my mate Mike. How you going, Mike? What's up, Mellon? Pretty good, brother. Just uh, coming down off a high of watching some uh, Top Gun 2, finally, and uh, really enjoyed it. And <laughs> talk about uh, best remake of the, what is it, the best documentary ever filmed or something like that? That's right, part two of the greatest true documentary ever filmed. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it speaks for itself. I'm sure nearly everyone out there has gone and seen it by now. And as I said to you the other day, it's not too late. You can still get your package in. You get a couple of people who write a referral for you. I'm not can... doing it. I'm not doing it. <laughs> There's two pilots are enough for this podcast, man. I, uh, I, I'm proud of where I'm at. I'll hold, I'll hold my ground. Thank you. I was saying we know, we'll know we've hit rock bottom and we're too popular when we get the Steven Seagal fighter pilot film. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We did talk about that. So we, I know we joked about Steven Seagal before, but uh, what is it? A good man. It's going to be Top Gun, a good pilot, no semicolon, and it will just be oh Steven God. Seagal sitting in a sitting in a chair in a plane the whole time, just talking shit. And yeah, four stars at one G. At one G, will <laughs> have to be like an airliner. He wouldn't fit in all fighter pilots. In all fighters, <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, for the listeners, we got Raf. He's running late. Slowpoke Espinosa is doing his thing. He's actually probably taxing an aircraft in right now. So at some stage during the, uh, the podcast episode, he will, he should join us. He should dial in, do a an off-target RV, as we say, and uh, we'll give him shit for being late. But uh, it's always good to start now. But as you guys probably saw in the show notes and in the uh, intro piece, we're very lucky to be uh, joined by one of Mike's old mates, Rico. How you going, Rico? Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having now, me. Mate, you're very, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. So maybe you could, uh, I mean, unfortunately for you, you knew, you knew Mike in a previous life, but perhaps you could uh, just let us know a little bit about yourself, what your background is. I understand you're, uh, you're a former Navy then. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm a retired Navy guy. I spent uh, 20 years on active duty. Uh, the majority of that time, I was in a fairly strange uh, job occupation. Uh, some somebody, some of you guys may have heard of it. It's called explosive ordnance disposal. And uh, what that is is that's the uh, Navy's bomb disposal units. And uh, it's really exciting and uh, interesting and fulfilling work. And it uh, it led me to some some pretty cool adventures. Uh, not some, not all good, not all bad. It's always interesting. So yeah. So, twenty years in the Navy. EOD. That's right. Mm-hmm. People might be familiar with there's a Mike uh, a Mark Renner movie where he was the bomb guy, right? Yes. And that for us, uh, that for EOD guys is like the uh, Charlie Sheen Navy SEALs movie for uh, <laughs> SEALs. You know, we kind of hate it. It's, it's a little bit embarrassing and. Uh, yeah, I like to say, yeah, I'm totally like that guy, except uh, I'm good at my job. That guy was horrible. <laughs> yeah, we've all got shit films out there. Yeah. About, what's, uh, your, what's yours, Mel? Well, I, I can't say Top Gun because there was no fighter pilot, but uh, certainly there's enough bad. I mean, wasn't there also a, a Charlie Sheen Hot Shots or something? It was a Top Gun pistol. Oh, yeah, yep, Hot Shots. That's, a good one. that's probably as good as it gets for me. Yeah. 
I, I would say I look at hot shots as being my my equivalent. That that's more realistic than I think the Charlie Sheen one uh, of Navy SEALs was. So hot shots <laughs> yeah. is good to go. Uh, and so twenty years were you EOD right off the the get go? Is that where you sort of that appealed to you? It's obviously a, a dangerous profession there. You're in. No, um, so actually, I, I joined the Navy in 1999, and I came in as an aviation electronics technician. And they had this opportunity to be an intermediate or an advanced. And I thought intermediate was like how hard it was versus the type of electronic components you're working on. So I was like, yeah, it seemed like I could do electronics, and intermediate doesn't sound too hard. So I chose that and ended up working on these little boxes from aircraft, actually uh, EP3 aircraft and i was awful at it so they put me in the corrosion shop where i just like sanded and listened to metal all day and spray painted these boxes because i was so awful at the uh, electronics business so i was about two years in and i started you know it was time to decide hey do i want to take orders do i want to get out of the navy do i what do i want to do and i always wanted to do something in special operations so i started kind of shopping around and where I, you know, I was looking at going to Buds or being a diver, or, and I heard about EOD, and there were some EOD guys up on the base I was stationed at, Whidbey Island, Washington, and it, they they really mentored me well and guided me towards going to EOD, and it turned out to be a really good fit for me. Um, I like to, uh, I like to, uh, you know, everybody's like, what's the difference between SEALs and EOD? Well. I like to, to say it like this. I like to say, well, think of the jocks and the nerds, except the SEALs are jocks, but they're like the most intelligent jocks you've ever met in your life. And the EOD guys are nerds, except we're the most jocular nerds you've ever met in your life. So uh, it's kind of like a, a symbiotic relationship that I really enjoy. And I'm happy. I really chose well with, with the side that I chose to go down, the path that I decided to go down. Oh, that's super cool, man. And what year did you change over to EOD there? Yeah, so I came to the Navy in 99, and I went to EOD school uh, uh, right at the end of 2001 after the towers fell. Wow. Um, yeah, so a little adversity going through EOD school. Uh, I made it almost all the way through my first time, and I was a little bit immature, and I failed out of the school. So uh, they had this program where it's called the EOD Assistant Program. So I went and uh, they give you a little, they don't throw you away completely. They give you a little seasoning in a unit for a year, let you, let you grow up a little bit, let you mature. Um, there's a lot of independent operations in EOD where you have to integrate with uh, other units and, and make some pretty real-time calls. So, you know, if, if they see somebody who has what it takes but maybe just needs a little bit more seasoning, it was an opportunity to train them. And during that training phase, I actually, uh, I got to go do the invasion of Iraq. Um, so I flew into Kuwait City International Airport and, uh, with my bag full of gear and basically no tactical training, uh, and just went to work. Um, we were doing a lot in the, uh, the ports of, uh, Kuwait City. Um, uh, one of the notable events that we had out there was, uh, we did a takedown of a, uh, uh, basically it was a tugboat that was pulling a barge. And the barge was set up as a underwater mine uh, laying vessel. So the Aussies took that down. We flew out and we uh, intercepted the ship. 
my team, and we basically got to exploit all these mines and uh, unload them and bring them back to the States. So that was, that was pretty neat. Um, as far as combat goes on that first one, uh, I went into Iraq, but like nothing bad ever happened to me. You know, I didn't fire my weapon. Um, I didn't, you know, there, we had some incoming type of situations and some, some stuff like that, but nothing that I, after being in heavy combat after, nothing I would consider heavy combat. So anyhow, I got back from that and uh, went back to EOD school and finished up there, and then I was stationed in Whidbey Island, Washington, um, with my first team, uh, back at that unit, you know, who screened me, and so I was super blessed to be up there. Uh, it was a small unit, super family. We had about 40 operators. Um, so did a deployment. It was a, a Westpac out of there, um, got a little bit more seasoning, and then 2007 rolls around, and it's the surge, so we're we're hot on deck. It's all hands on deck going into Iraq. Um, I'm with a, uh, a, a seven-man team, part of a 14-man company, and we're working for uh, a, a group called Task Force Troy out of Camp Spiker in Iraq. This is April of 2007, and this is this is where things starts things start to go a little haywire. So we're on deck to get into into Iraq, and we're supposed to chop in maybe around May, April. Um, three of my bros were uh, they're basically going from Spiker into Crit. Um, I can't remember the name of the town, but it was west of there. I'll, I'll have to look it up. And I hate to disrespect these guys' memory by not remembering the town there. They passed it. But anyhow, Greg Billiter, he was the chief on that team. Uh, Curtis Hall was an E5, and Adam McSween was an E6. All of my friends, and they were killed. Um, there was basically like an improvised rocket that was set up and hit their Humvee and killed all three of them. So we're back in Whidbey Island, and we get the news. They're like, hey, these dudes just got, got killed, and you guys are going in early. And we'd been hearing reports of uh, what it was like out there, but nothing really amplified what we were getting into. So the area that I ended up in, it was called Beji. And where Beji was, it's about 60 or 70 miles north of Baghdad, maybe a little further. Um, but it's right across the, across the Lake Tartar Dam from Fallujah and Ramadi. So if you can remember what was going down in 2070, we had the Marines, all the special operations, uh, just a major push um, through those areas. And what happened was they pushed everybody into this place. It's called the ZAB, the Zab Triangle. I actually did some research on this place in, at a later time. Um, and it, it was just highly, highly kinetic. Um, so we chop in, you know, three of our friends have already been killed. We fly into uh, Camp Spiker, and uh, basically, if anybody understands how the bases are laid out, it's like uh, it's like spokes on a wheel, right? So you have your 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 big base, your your cop, your contingency operating base, and then you have your fobs, your forward operating bases. So one of the I was on this place. I was at this place called Fob Summerall, and that was about an hour north of Decret. So we get out there, and it's, it's you know, very small fire base. We're living in, like, this bombed-out building that we, uh, you know, framed in and, you know, did the old let's make this better for ourselves. 
living out of two by fours and plywood type of situation? Stolen AC units? Is that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, standard. Oh, check in. What can we take to make our place better? And that's right. Don't worry about the rest. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was me and my buddy Carrie, and uh, we had a warrant officer, Mark, who's uh, love you, Mark, but you're a little crazy. And uh, so uh, us three myth- misfits, we-, we had no idea where we're going into. We're going into the heart of darkness. And we, we take our Jerv, which is our big old truck, and the role we were supposed to be filling for, for people to, who don't really understand what EOD does, there's different types of EOD. And this type of EOD, it was kind of like the fire department in Iraq in a combat zone. So we had this big old truck with our robot, our bomb suit, whole bunch of demolition material and then we would roll out with uh, army security uh, for our case we had the uh, 82nd airborne one of the parachute infantry regiments uh, it was actually the 1505 parachute infantry regiment if any of those dudes are out there i absolutely love you guys uh, you saved our ass on many many occasions so right on um, yeah so anyhow they were like our escort and we'd go out to these ied sites and you know prosecute the ieds um it was a really good feeling uh doing that there's uh times where there'd be an ied on the main supply route and traffic had been backed up like two miles long for these uh supply convoys who were going up and down and they were just stuck there so we'd go blazing by them drop the robot out blow the ied up or take it apart do whatever we had to do and then turn around and everybody would be honking their horns and like cheering for us because uh you know it was we basically these ieds were killing these guys so it felt really good to you know to have to be doing a job where you're like man i'm i'm, I'm helping out i'm helping my friends so so really really took a lot of uh, satisfaction away from that um so back up rewind a little bit first night we get into beijing um it's it's on uh we have our little hooch and we have this little hescode compound hescodes are you guys know what HESCO is, but for the audience, if you don't know what a HESCO barrier is, uh, it's like a giant six by six basket filled with dirt where you can build, it's like build my home fortress type of deals. So we had our HESCO bombed out building and we could park our big trucks in there and we had our ammunition facility where we can get all our demolition materials out of and just we'd stand by and it was like it was a firehouse. So first night we get in there, we're doing right seat, left seat with some of our uh, guys from the West Coast. We turned over with some UD dudes from there, and we got to go into the city of Beijing. So uh, me and Terry, and we get a call to go into the city because there's been a uh, blast that had uh, killed some Iraqi policemen, and they wanted us to go do a post-blast investigation and make sure there was no other explosive hazards so they could tow this truck away. So we're like, yeah, cool. Um, so we get into the city, and the guys who are driving the truck are like blasting like some metal, and they're like, let's go. And we're like, what? What is going on here? So they're all, they've been doing this for six months, so they know the deal. They're, they're moving fast. They're acting fast. They're on the comms. ECM's going. You are gun checks with our 50 cal going outside the wire. We're like big eye. We're like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. So we, we roll into Beijing, and it's like, the scariest town you've ever been to. Uh, I don't know who installed the tumbleweeds going across, but every time you see a tumbleweed, that means you're going to get in a gunfight, just for the record. Um, 
Yeah, so we go into the city, and there's a whole bunch of cops there. As soon as they see us, they start throwing chem lights, these red chem lights that we give them that they see an IED, that the last team had given them, and they run away. And then all the lights in the city just turn off at the same time. And we're like, oh, my God, what is going on here? So the guy we were turning over with, Aaron, he's like, come on, guys, let's go. So he jumps out of the truck with a flashlight, starts running around this vehicle, like digging in a blast crater. Just like, we're like, what are you doing? And these dudes are obviously dead. who have been like splattered, the Iraqi police department guys, just been splattered in this truck. And me and Terry are watching this madman like dig around in this blast crater. We're like, what are we into right now? Of course, nothing uh, sets off your first night without a little gunfight. So a little gunfire, a little uh, the the guy from the mosque doing his, uh, you know, I don't know what he's saying, but I, th- I think he was saying kill, kill Rico. <laughs> uh, so it was uh it was terrifying man it was terrifying but one thing that i did take away from it it was also electric i was like oh my god i, I can cut the i can cut the atmosphere with a knife it's it's so exciting here it's so electric so so yeah i, I hadn't really come face to face with the hard truths of serious combat so I mean, we rico real quick uh would you say from your first deployment and then up until this one, everything was like what you thought it would be. Like, it's fun, it's exciting, and not a lot of stressors. The mental side of it was still exciting. Oh, yeah. It was it was totally Disneyland, you know? Yeah. Um, I got to go through all these cool schools. I went through Navy dive school. I went through, like, driving school, a bunch of shooting schools, airborne free fall. You know, like, I was just going to schools, hanging out with my bros, and just, you know hanging out with positive guys and just really enjoying it. Yeah. You know? So it was, it was, it was Disneyland EOD at that point. Gotcha. Okay. That's very important for the listeners. Like as you're listening, especially people who've been to combat and been around a while, you know, that's very important to acknowledge. I will call it the, the Hollywood time of it, man, this is everything I thought it would be and super cool and this, that, whatever. But, as this conversation goes, really pay attention to how this is about to transition. So, uh, go ahead, Rico. I like to I like to relate it to a marriage. You know, your your career within these communities are like a marriage. You know, you start out in that that love phase that you know you have all these endorphins popping and it's so exciting. But then you know, hey, you have some problems. You're either going to work through them or it's gonna it's gonna kill the relationship. So that's perfect. Yeah. So, yeah, so we get in there and it's, it's an eye opener. Um, we have, we have this schedule we get set up, uh, do right, right. We call it right. See, left, see, turnover with these other guys for a few days and they're fried and they're crazy. And we just, we're like, you guys got to go. And I'd see down the road that the guys that turned over with me did the same thing to me. They're like, you're, you guys are done. Get out of here. You're, you're, you're wild men. Um, so. We, we kind of made a schedule because um, there was only three of us up there. So we did 48 hours on call and then 24 hours off. And we tried to operate with two guys, like one guy driving the truck, one guy operating the back as far as doing the IED work, like driving the robot. Um, so we would start out our shift, right? And we would load this truck full of demo. And before we even go out on our first call, we had a stack of like a list of calls, like, 10 deep IEDs every single day. And it was just like, we jock up and we jam outside the wire and we just get to it. Um, 
you know, it was really weird because every IED situation is not the same. Um, we started dealing with things like secondary devices. So you'd be like, hey, there's an IED right here. Let's park our truck a certain distance away. You hop out of the truck, dump the robot out, get it going down, and an IED blows off. So you're like, oh, man, this like every step we would take, they would take another step. If we would come up with ECM for our, our vehicles, um, they would use some type of uh, techniques to to beat that. And it was like it was kind of like uh, spy versus spy, next versus next. Yeah. And it, the game started getting pretty real out there. We had some pretty close shaves. Um, one of the ones that I wanted to talk about um, was uh, I, I called this the house bomb. So we um, we get this call from our security guys, and they're like, "Hey, we got some dudes uh, firing mortars at the base, and we have them dead to rights on the J lens." And what the J lens was was this big air balloon deal that had video cameras that could see like miles outside the city, and they could zoom in and find their, they're called poo sites, point of origin. So it basically had some software to track uh, where the, the mortars were coming from so we could respond to those positions. So anyhow, these guys, uh, they call us up. And the airborne dudes are like, hey, we're going to go kill these guys. And they got a bunch of ordnance there. You guys want to come with us? And we're like, yeah, we're, we're, we, let's do it. So we roll up in the trucks. We uh, offset about, about a click. And me and Mark, we... Um, basically run up to the house and they wanted us to come with them because conventional army guys we were dealing with there, you know, didn't have all the capabilities that the soft troops I'd work with later have. So they wanted us to bring our explosives and breach the door. And we had more, a little bit of more tactical essays as far as clearing and, you know, just that type of work than they did at that time. So, so they invited us along. Anyhow, we, um, it's 110 degrees and you're, my adrenaline was just jacked. So I'm, Running this click up, and me and Mark, you know, with the, with the first few infantry guys, we put the charge in the door, blast this lock off the door where these, these guys were supposed to be, go in. Well, it's dry hole. We missed them. They squirted. Don't know what the situation was. But I look up, and I'm in the middle of a, a homemade explosives lab. And I'm like, oh, dear God. And so we kind of back out of there and we start like searching the area and it's just like explosives and huge caches, and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm like, my adrenaline's been peaked. It's 115 degrees. I have my helmet on and all this stress is just making, making my temperature spike. So I start like really getting almost starting to go down. So Mark's like, Hey man, come take a knee over by this tree with me. And I'm like, all right, I need to dump some water on my head for a minute. So we're kind of in a lull, you know, the site's pretty secure. We got gun trucks around, you know, it's going to take a lot for a dude to just pop out and blast us. So you find these moments where you're like, I'm pretty safe right now. So I drop to my knee and I kind of look out of the corner of my eye and there's this wire going down the tree. And I look around and turn my head and there's this big old IED, called them oil can IEDs, sitting right next to us. And, uh... Yeah, right then, Terry comes blasting up with the truck and the ECM on, and he's been in the truck and the air conditioning. He kind of pulls me and Mark back. He's like, whoa, you guys, did, you guys need to take a break. And so at that time, he pulled up the ECM. I don't know. Somebody could have been on that trigger. So it was, it was a little bit scary. Hmm. Um, so we had a lot of those close shave type of moments. But long story short, on that house, we got to, uh, we got to blow the whole house up, make this huge detonation. And uh, it, was, it was a great day. 
So Rico, the question I got, and it's and it's kind of weird asking EOD this, because uh, you guys literally deal with it every single time. But uh, would you say for your career going into this uh, this H bed of a house of a bomb making lab, and then seeing that that charge on the tree, and knowing that like you know a, a click of a of a button or a press of a battery, and that would have been the end of you and your buddy. Um, did that really process? Like, did that really hit you in the moment? Or is this something that took days, weeks, maybe even months or years later to really process of going, holy shit, that could have been it. Because uh, I've, I've shared a well, story previous about running over an IED where it, it took me a while to really let that in of like, that could have been the end of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe a little column A and a little column B, because I remember... Whenever I'd have these real close shaves, like I would get shot at when I was working at an IED or, I mean, I got blown up seven times when I was out there. But every time I had a really close shave, uh, I'd go back to my hooch and I'd throw up and then I'd sleep. So physiologically, my body, I feel like knew what to do, which will kind of segue us or foreshadow us into into the end of this. Um but as far as the reality, I think it's taken years to really come to grips with, wow, I should be dead right now. It's pretty awesome that I'm alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's it's, so, it's it's good to know and hear that because everybody processes things different. You know, um, the three of us have talked before and, you know, Raph has shared things hit him over more time versus me. It hit me immediately. Uh, with some occasions. And that's okay. You know, I think it's very important for everybody to understand, like, if you're not processing right away, that it's okay, that it it may take some more time and some more assistance and help and all that stuff. So I just wanted to ask that to put out to there to people to hear this from your side, that it wasn't automatic, that it did take a while. But uh, please continue. I know that I would have just shipped myself if I saw a house full of bombs and a a tree that was part of the whole thing, man. Like, it's, that's a wild story, Rick. I can't believe you just shared that with us, man. Like, it's it sounds like you got a thousand so, more um, to go. Yeah, so uh, I, I have this tattoo on my arm, and uh, it's, uh, it's a flower with a sword in it. It's actually a poppy flower. And the reason I have it there in the crick of my, uh, the crick of my arm is my, I call it my war drug. And... I don't know what it is, and I'm pretty sure you have some of it. And we all love our lives and just want to, you know, tackle life. But it's pretty pretty fun to do some exciting, dangerous stuff sometimes. So we don't do this because it's not fun. You know, that's that's the big secret. Everybody's like, oh, you're so patriotic. No, I'm not. I just like to have fun with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> hey, speaking of friends, we just had a, uh, a rejoin here with uh... – our, our pilot friend, Raph. So welcome to the party, Raph. He, he just landed his plane successfully. I hope so. And he's in his Prius uh, driving driving home. So welcome, <laughs> Dude, I, I'm just in here enjoying the stories from Rico about how he's doing hood rat shit with his friends. I don't want him to stop. So <laughs> yeah, That's right. Yeah. Rico, Mike, shut up. Let, let Rico talk. Yeah, Raph's <clears throat> been there for like 10 minutes, but we're just like, no one's interrupting this freaking EOD story. <laughs> All right, All right so, so back to the EOD stories. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, so so in Iraq, things are starting to get pretty serious on us. And to answer your question a little bit more, 
the day that got really serious on me, I, I can pinpoint that day. It was the 4th of July. And we're going into, uh, we're down into Crit, and we're supposed to go to this place called Iraqi Army Island. And it's some island in the middle of the Tigris River that there's like a road to it. And uh, so we bring our jerv, which is our big old truck, and then we're manning this all with like EOD guys. And we're going to put this like training thing on and check on the Iraqi Army bomb squad and trying to get these dudes up to speed. Um, so to get out here, we have to go again through the heart of darkness, through downtown to Crit through all this craziness and we we have a feeling that some of these iraqi guys are dirty on the bomb squad um you know because we've kind of like taught them doing stuff um through certain certain methods that i can't really get into but so we kind of knew we were dealing with some shitheads so we wouldn't like to tell them what day we're showing up because there would always be booby traps or ieds on the road uh we didn't want to get killed going there so this particular day we're going out to iraqi islands and uh, I'm in the lead Humvee, and we have the Jerv, and we're driving through to Crit, and I see this police officer, and he's got a, a roadblock, and he's, t- he's directing traffic, and I get on the radio, I'm like, get ready, guys, here it comes, get ready, and as soon as we turn this corner, big old IED goes off, and we just we just get into this weird situation, you know, gunfire type of situation, in the middle of the city, there's all these civilians around, the two front wheels of the, the Jerv are knocked out, so it's they're they're not knocked out, but they're ran flat. And I'm in the turret, man, in the 50 cal machine gun, and this blast goes off like right behind my head. So I'm I'm in the wah-wahs, like wong wong wong, and uh, my buddy Bob he's beating on my leg, like the Rico Rico, you gotta fight, you gotta get ready to fight. And so we kind of got ourselves out of that situation and got off the X and made our way towards this Iraqi army base. Well, I was still kind of in the uh, in the confusion phase of what was going on. And I was holding security as the rest of the convoy went through this gate onto this Iraqi base. Well, this gate wasn't manned that well. It was like a guy with a broomstick, like, Hey, come on in dudes. So they didn't have quite the same security posture as an American military base. So I didn't know I was on a base. Everything looked the same to me. So we pull off in this field and we're doing like a little battle damage assessment. Everybody's like, Hey, you okay, bro? You okay? And uh, I'm still up in the turret. Well, this dude in this little, like, you know, Toyota Tercel from 1978 starts rocking up. And uh, there's, like, uh, engagement procedures you have to go through before you can just start shooting people. So it's like you had to wave a little flag at them and then throw a rock and then wave your hands and then you can start shooting. Um, so when I was in the turret, I always kept, kept a few of these items, you know, like pencil flares, uh, uh, crashes that I could throw, and then a shotgun. So I I stepped up the levels of engagement, and then I started shooting this guy's, uh, shooting this guy's uh, front grill out with a shotgun, you know, put a few rounds in there. So he stops, looks at me with the big eyes, and and backs up and speeds away. All right, that's cool. Nobody's hurt. Life's good. He'll buy a new radiator. Anyhow, my, uh, my team leader, he comes hopping up on the uh, hopping up on the hood of the hood of the vehicle, and he lifts up my ear because I had my peltors on. Those are these these headsets, you know, for communications that we wear. And uh, he's like, "Hey, Rico, uh, you good?" I'm like, "Yeah, bro, just holding it down, you know, doing a little security. We all good back there?" He's like, uh, "You know, we're on the base right there, right now." 
And I'm like, oh, my bad. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was a scary one, man. And, and at that point, that was like the shift, um, the shift in whatever the universe was. So about two weeks later, uh, my best friend, Jeff Cheney, this guy, he was just larger than life, man. Amazing. And I, I want to make sure I share his saying. So Jeff had this saying. He said, man, don't worry about it. I'll always make more money. I'll never make more time. Uh, so maybe he had a little premonition about what was going to happen to him. Um, I don't know. But uh, he was down in Samara, and that's that's about another hour south of the crit. So he was south and I was north. and We never really got to work together on this deployment, even though we were on the same team. We're also spread out, fragged out. Um, so him and the chief, Pat Wade, and uh, our other friend, David Hawkshurst, were uh, responding to a call outside of Samara. And one of the tactics, the uh, AQI guys and the surgeons were using at the time, they were putting like thousands of pounds of explosives under the roads in these culverts. And they drove over one of these said culverts and hit it dead on. And it, it blew that jerv 40 feet in the air. And this jerv is a 50,000 pound vehicle. And it, it killed Jeff. Um, and it killed Pat, and Dave was wounded very badly. Uh, Dave's still around, and, you know, he's doing pretty well, but he he's definitely has lifelong wounds from this event. So I'm into credit at the time. We we had to run down to Fob, uh, it was Fob Spiker, to uh, refill our demolitions and, you know, get food and ammo and supplies and stuff, and then we drive back up to Beijing, so... I was down there at the time, and our boss, I remember, uh, came to my room, knocked on the door, and I saw he had tears in his eyes, and I knew immediately. I knew exactly what he was going to say. He goes, Rico, go get the boys. Um, I got something to say, and I can only say it once. So I'm like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Who is it? Who is it? So we had already lost guys at that point, just nothing, no, nobody on our deployment. So get everybody in. Kevin's like, all right. Uh, we got a derp down. Um, Jeff's dead. Pat's dead. And it sounds like Hawks is going to die. And at that moment, man, I just, you know, I, I, it's my first time in my life losing someone and really understanding what heartbreak feels like. And it's just raw, raw emotion. Um, I remember going into my room and just shaking and, laying on my floor and just crying and um, it, it was almost like an out-of-body experience and my body like was just doing what it needed to do and you know so we had like our little little on-base memorial there but then it was back to business so I mean after this happened the next day like our unit we probably pulled 10 of those things between the guys down south the guys in the center in Samar and the guys up north in Beijing there was like a campaign to like load the whole MSR up with these culvert bombs. So yes, our friend died, but we still had work to do. And we just got doing it and it just kept pushing and pushing. At that point, things started to go a little bit dark for me. Um, I started to have like a serious resentment towards the Iraqi population. I really started to hate these people. And I really started uh, amping up my aggression when I'd go out. And um, the result of that, you know, um, has had some things happen. You know, you start getting real aggressive and 
yeah, I just want to ask you a quick question. You know, after your teammates getting killed. Yeah. Horrible event. And I'm sure you, I know you weren't the only guy feeling it there, especially with the high stress job that you're doing and going through and the environment alone. I, I know that sure. there's, there's always a, you know, a discussion about mental health, uh, a chaplain, you know, hey, resources available. We can talk if anybody like to, you know, there's always that, but then there's always that weight of the mission. That's like, well, like you said, time to get back at it. They want us to continue. We got to get back on the saddle and, and go back out. And that's how we honor them and whatever. Mm -hmm. I get that part. I've experienced that part. Did you feel at that point, one, that you needed help or that you could deal with it yourself? Or two, you said you were pretty angry, so maybe you just didn't care. Maybe a little bit of both. I had no idea the ramifications that these events of this short period of time would have on the rest of my life. Um, I didn't even consider going to mental health. I just wanted to eat. I just wanted to get IEDs. I just wanted to fight. I just wanted, I just wanted to get some. I just turned on my lizard brain and, and just went for it. And I feel like there's a time and place for mental health and there's a time and place for counselors. Uh, I don't think the heart of darkness is one of it. The heart of darkness is a place where, you know, you need your brothers. And in my opinion, as a teammate on many special operations teams and EOD teams, uh, being able to hug your brother, uh, put your arm on his shoulder. Uh, I always say, I love you. Um, and I feel like that's what got me through. And that was my therapy at the time. I feel like there was no outsider who had any business within, within our world. It was our own madhouse. And I, I didn't even consider letting anybody else in at the time. Uh, as you, you guys all know, within our communities, we're very tribal. And I was at war with my tribe, and there was nowhere else that I'd rather be. And I still, to this day, I would never trade any of my experiences I had. I, they were, some were horrible. Um, they were interesting. <laughs> Nothing else. They were freaking interesting. Oh, absolutely, man. Uh, I 100% agree. And uh, it's very hard to be able to communicate with people that haven't been with you in that those moments and being able to understand completely, not just the, the, the perspective, but the pain that you're feeling as well. Um, there's nothing that can replace that. Um, we could go on for hours, about 20 years of experience with an EOD. Um, that story when we talked, um, and, and just let all the listeners know what kind of guy Rico is. Uh, we, we did uh, a workup together a couple of years ago. We talked and, uh, we got to talking, but recently we went out to a trivia night and we got to talking about real stuff. And Rico, he was like, man, maybe I could come on sometime and really share some stuff that I've been through and learned. And I was kind of in awe at his story, uh, that I never knew about him personally. Uh, but just to see where he was standing was very inspiring to me. Like, wow, this guy has really taken it head on and done the work. Um, and this story that he just shared was, was one of them, but uh, kind of what, you know, Rico, you wanted to really get into is, you know, 20 years of military service going into contracting and this whole long chapter of your life. Um, 
has taught you many lessons and you've been through a lot of things. Um, what is it that you kind of want to really share with the listeners about perspective and what you went through versus what you really nobody ever wants to go through, but how it helped you? Okay, Mike, uh, thanks for the segue on that one. I was, I was looking to transfer into that. So that the reason I shared that particular time, I feel like it, it forged me and prepared me for what I was getting ready to go through. So fast forward to the end of my career, um, I was really, uh, really lucky I got the opportunity to serve with a SEAL team, and I, I just, I really enjoyed it. It was my last mission. Uh, unfortunately, during, right before the deployment, um, I had a blood clot in my uh, uh, mesosteric vein, and it almost killed me. Um, so... I was getting ready to hit my 20 and re-enlist and go on deployment with my team and the SEAL team as well. And uh, I was basically medically done. They're like, at the very, at the pinnacle of your career, right before you're ready to go on deployment, you're done. So I was super upset about that. And things just started to spiral out of control for me. Um, you know, it went from Iraq and all these things that I never really dealt with. And then went to Afghanistan after that and had all these other crazy experiences in the next 13 years up to this point. Um, and now I'm getting ready to go deploy with the SEAL team or, you know, into East Africa and I get sick and I can't go. And so I'm, I'm pissed off. So I'm like, whatever, I'm going to write my 20 years anyway. I'll retire. Screw you guys. I'm not sitting, I'm not sitting at desk. I want to operate. And so I just get out and Instead of just getting out, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go to Brazil for a while. I'm going to do some jiu-jitsu. So jam down to Brazil, do some jiu-jitsu, and then I get hired uh, by a contracting firm that does some work with OGA. So take the, take the job with OGA. Oh, and I decided to divorce my wife of 18 years all at the same time. Um, so basically my cup was full, and I dumped it all out. Um, I do have three kids at this time, and... You know, I basically just up and left. Um, I was, you know, just so out of out of the uh, mental good headspace that the only thing I could think to do was just keep going and dig more, dig myself deeper into a combat hole. So ended up going out to East Africa, and uh, some of my teammates thought it was pretty cool when I flew into uh, Somali on a blacked out C-130 and showed up at their site. They're like, yo, Rico, aren't you out of the Navy? And I'm like, uh-huh. So they thought that, how'd you get here? What are you doing? And I'm like, eh, you know. So it, it was it was a pretty cool experience, you know. I, I had, it kind of was some good clo- some closure for me that I needed to have because I had so much uh, dedicated to those guys. So I get back from get back from East Africa, come back into a normal life, and here's where things really start to fall apart. Um, my family had been neglected for 20 years. Um, I had a son who was starting to go off. My oldest son was starting to go off the rails a little bit, you know, drinking, doing drugs. Uh, my youngest son was, uh, you know, drinking, doing drugs, partying, um, just, you know, he got arrested a few times. So we had to deal with some lawyer stuff and COVID hits and we're, you know, we're trying to, trying to sort this all out and um, he goes and stays with his mom for a little bit, my, my youngest son, and ends up having uh, 
you know, taking a bunch of drugs and uh, ended up shooting himself. So my middle son, you know, died by died by suicide, which is the most painful and horrible thing that any human being can ever go through. And there's a lot of people out there who know what happened to me and know what happened to my family, but don't want to talk to me. And I feel like they are scared to talk to me about it because they don't want to reopen wounds or they don't want to face the dark, dark reality of the pain of losing a child. So, yeah, so that happens. And this is about two years ago now. And, you know, it was really strange because I had been prepared for this. Um, it, it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't fun. It wasn't nice. There was nothing good about it. But my combat experience and my experience losing my best friends kind of taught me how to navigate. This wasn't my first time dealing with the death of a close loved one. Um, this wasn't my first time with death. Um, is gallows humor as it sounds like I, I was I was prepared for this and so I, I kind of made up my mind you know after the after the ashes settled and you know we got him buried and you know the chaos of the next six or eight months and finding new places to live and you know just settling out after such chaos I really decided all right I can drown myself in a bottle and end up with a you know Maybe a gun to my head, maybe estranged from my children, or you know I can honor my friends who died, and I can honor my son and just bite life and eat it and go for it. So I'm like, well, all right, how does one do this? Um, so just start out with the basics, you know, um, diet, clean ass diet, get some decent sleep. That's cool. Got to do your PT. Got to do your PT every day, and I do jujitsu. Uh, Anybody knows Gustavo Machado in Virginia Beach? This dude is a saint. He is uh, he's the man. And uh, if you ever have a chance to go train some jiu-jitsu with Gustavo, it'll definitely change your life. Yeah, so that. And then, uh, you know, I've been pretty involved in some pretty deep therapy, uh, not only to deal with some PTSD, but, you know, all my grief issues, issues of losing my son. Um, so basically what I wanted to, wanted to say is, you know, the chips are down, but life is hard. You know, I, I don't think I would have survived this if I wouldn't have had the experience of, you know, being with such positive men all my adult life, such guys who never quit, uh, always had their hand on your shoulder, bringing you up, uh, and had that circle surrounding me of my, my I call them my black ski mask friends. And I think knows what that's like. If there's something really bad that goes down, you got your black ski mask friends, and they will come. And uh, you know who those guys are. You don't have very many of them. And so I was really surrounded by those guys. And uh, so, yeah, I had a couple things. Um, you know, just uh, I'd say the one thing that's carried me through all, all of this was just positive mental attitude. And, and don't get me wrong. I have my bad days. Like there are certain days where I lay down in the privacy of my own room and I just cry. I just let my body do what it needs to do, and I don't fight it. Uh, your body knows what to do. Your, your soul knows what to do. And, you know, I'm not the first man in the history of humankind who has lost a child. It's the most difficult thing you can do, but you can't do it. 
Um, so I don't know. I just wanted to share that with maybe somebody's out there and they're in a dark place. And, uh, I still have rough days, man. I still have some rough days, but I, I, I just feel like there's so much to enjoy in life and so much love out there, so much compassion, so much good, so much. Yeah, I just, I, the only, my only choice was to be a ridiculous optimist. So, so that's where I'm at. Rico, just, I'd heard your story before we met, you know, Mike shared it and uh, we spoke just very briefly before coming on and, you know, being a father, I, I just immediately imagined going through that scenario myself and I was very emotional actually last night thinking about it and, you know, I was really looking forward to meeting you and hearing your story and <clears throat> I just really want to thank you and acknowledge you for sharing this with us and that the ripples from the stone you throw in the pond, you never know where they go. And we are contacted regularly by people who are in the midst of a hard time and they don't see any mm -hmm. way out. And stories like this really help people. You know, like it takes a lot to share these things, you know, and just like immediately when you got on a call, I was like, man, this dude has just got a positivity around him and an energy state that is not what I was expecting. And there's... Something you've shared in there, like you've addressed some physical stuff with diet, sleep, PT, 100%. We, the three of us really, that's a mantra for us. Therapy, you know, you're reaching out to professionals who know what to do in situations with the PTSD and the grief. You're getting counselling. But then that last one, you know, there's such a key of you reaching out to your mates, your closest mates, your black ski mask mates, and getting that positivity around you when you need it. You know, the people who love you right down to the bones are doing anything for you and being with those guys, but also not being afraid to let those emotions out when you needed to. Like you, you said that earlier on in your story, your body knew what it needed to do and letting that stuff out. And I, I had those moments around, um, I don't think I've told these two guys, when, when Annie was having some of her hard times and surgery and stuff, my daughter right at the start, uh, some several near-death experiences, like 13. And just, you know, at a certain point after the stress time, having a, a, a physical reaction like that. And it, it, it means something to hear it from a guy who's gone through the stuff you've gone through. You know, so I just just want to acknowledge you for what you've shared. And, um, you know, I think that there's some real... It's not like they're secrets, right? But... It's an amazing thing that you've done to square your shoulders and face life and carry on and look for the positivity on the other side of these things. And just, you know, hats off to you, man. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, toot my horn or anything or say I've got it all figured out because, you know, my life is not all roses, so I don't want to uh, come across as I have it all figured out. But what I do know is every human being that walks this earth is going to deal with tragedy. They're going to deal with loss. They're going to deal with hardship. Um, and it just seems like, you know, a society, I feel like we're a little scared to, to face that, hey, ultimately we're going to deal with death and we're going to face our own death at some point. So you can, you can let it be a bummer or look at your time. As my friend Jeff Cheney said, always make more money. I'll never make more time. Just crush your time. Enjoy it. Be with people. That's such a, that's such a fucking great line, man. You know, you can always make more money, but you never get more time. And I know, I know Mike has shared some of that, um, you know, having calls with people and talking about the blessing of the day that you have 
that if the fallen were offered that day to come back, you know, what would they give for the the day you got full of suffering, full of joy, full of happiness, full of mundane, you know, not not some amazing day, but just a a normal shitty regular day. What would they give for that? You know, yeah, you can, yeah. On, you can day, honor them. Day. You can honor them and seize what you have, and you can square your shoulders like in the way that you're doing, and and you can you can choose to have joy despite the shit times that are going to come up for everyone. I think that's right. Well, I don't think I know. You know, w- one of the things that when I was talking to Rico at uh, the game night is hearing this story and then his willingness to be able to share it with me. Like him and I knew each other as teammates, but I don't think we truly knew each other as men outside of work. And that was the first really deep conversation that I had with Rico. And just hearing his story. And then the way he spoke about it, honestly, was beautiful. I'll call it what it is. I was so taken back of like, here's this guy that could be pointing the finger at everything, at God, at life, at war, at everything, just saying it's all this fault. You know, it's all this thing's fault why I'm such a terrible person. Like, he has every right to be that way if he chose to be. But the fact that he's there at a fun little trivia night, hanging out with the the boys, telling jokes, trying to figure out who had what jersey in the nineteen thirty one World Series and you know, whatever, just laughing and genuinely being happy. I was like, man, this is a strong man. Like forget all the accolades, the titles, the pins, the military, like all this. I was like, this guy is a strong man. And like I said, I didn't even ask him to to come on the show. I told him about it. He's like, what have you been up to? And I was like, man, my life's been changing because I'm on this journey. And then it was him that approached us like, man, I would like to maybe come on and share. And I mean, I couldn't say no. And I brought it up with Raph and Mellon and instantly they're like, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's just really inspiring, Rico, to like really get to know you as a man and what you've been through. And then to share these things. Um I just want to tell, you know, we're all very experienced guys in military, retired, seen a lot of stuff. And I am genuinely in awe of hearing this story. Like, he's teaching me how to be a better man. Um, That's real strength to me. I want to surround myself with these type of men. Um, Not people that are going out to the bar and just saying fuck it all and all this other stuff, but really facing the chaos of which life is. And just saying, hey, I know this is going to suck. I, I, you know, I think we talked about, you know, getting into cold water. You know, it's like, hey, you got to get into cold water to learn the lesson. It's like, ah, you know, I, I know it's cold. I get it. I know what it will do to me. It'll make me tough. Maybe I get it, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, no, you have to get in the cold water for a while and go numb and feel the pain to really understand. You got to go through it. You have to go through it but you don't have to go through it alone. You find those strong men, right. those strong people that you can link <clears throat> arms with and get in the cold and just, you know, find the hope, find, find the drive. What's that? It's uh, whenever you're going through those hard times, I uh, love looking over at a buddy, you know, they'll just smile, you know, whether you're a gunfight or a freezing water, or they laugh, <laughs> you know, it's like, all right. He's okay. I'm good. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's the things that you that you lean on and, and get through, and really that strength side. We talk about brotherhood a lot, and that's definitely within the combat realm. If there's a gunfight, I'm there, no question. What do you need? But when we get out in those times of mental health, emotional health, you gotta be a you gotta be a brother or sister in, in that. In that moment, you got to be able to put your hand on the shoulder, like Rico said, and be like, hey, let's talk about this. You know, I can see the tears welling up in your eyes, man. Like, you're not even here. Let's talk about this. It's okay. You know, that's the other side of that of that brotherhood. Um, I try to do that as much as possible. You know, I, I shared I shared with Rico kind of what I've been going through the last couple of years, and then he opened up to me. And it was just, it was, it was a beautiful thing. And it felt so good to talk to somebody else. It was like, yeah, he gets it. It's so nice. He freaking gets it. You know, not the, you're not the only one who's been through some, uh, some stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, I, you know, we're going to have some good times, all four of us for the rest of our lives, but sorry, gentlemen, we're going to have some hard times too. I don't know what those hard times are. Um, life's hard and might as well just enjoy people you love around around it and as they say i guess guess it's cheesy but embrace the suck embrace the suck and enjoy the people around you because everybody's going to go through something and it can also help you like deal with people in life if you can keep in the back of your mind that these other people also are going to have these tragedies in their life if they haven't had them now it's still coming you know the good the bad Everyone out there, like you, you really have shared something that's really profound, Rico, that every single person is going to have tragedy in their life. And every person is going to have to face at the end of the day their own mortality. And can, can you be the kind of person who winks at your mate and smiles and gives them something in that moment and, you know, lifts them up and gives them a hand, a hand on the shoulder? Can you be the one that initiates the conversation and says, what's been going on in your life and be willing to sit there and hear? You know, like have a have a conversation occur that's tough, or are you the one who you know we're all so freaking busy and you don't want to get into it. You know, and these hard topics, but everyone has them. You've 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 nailed it by saying that because everyone has them and they're coming. They're coming down the pipe whether you want them or not, and no one wants them. And all you can do is equip yourself and help your mates. Be the be the be the type of friend that you want to have. Um, I I would say. You know, one of the things that I had to do was take a real hard look at a lot of the relationships in my life. Um, when you only have so much emotional bandwidth and, you know, you go through these type of tragedies, and you have other children that require your attention still, you have partners, romantic, or whatever they are in your life, your, your energy is drawn in multiple different directions. Um, I would say, personally, I have no room in my life for toxic or negative people. And... I have purged my life of all negativity. Um, now I'm not saying I'm not willing to help people, but it's really, really difficult to get into my circle, and it's extremely easy to get out. And what I'm talking about there is if you are a dude who is like a habitual integrity violator, you don't do what you say, you don't pay people back, all these basic tenets of being a good bro, um, can't be in my life if, if you're a scumbag. You just can't. I, I don't have the bandwidth to carry you. Um, 
my my ruck is pretty heavy right now, to say the least. So I need to be very positive and powerful people in my corner, and that's who I choose to be with. Well, like I like I honestly don't really know what to say other than I'm gonna sit and listen to this a couple of times, and there's there's a lot of gold in here, and you can hear seeds at the start. Like Mike knew the story in better detail than, than I did, that's for sure. And he heard the, you know, like those premonitions. And I know, I know that I've tried to live a bit. I've never faced the thing that you faced, Rico, but I've tried in my hard times to treat it like training for the next even shitter thing that's coming. That whatever, whatever's hard today, there's, there's a million people out there who trade their day for your, you know, your shittest day, they'd take over their best day. There's millions of them out there who are suffering worse than anything I've ever had. And all we can try and do is so prepare, wrote, ourselves, prepare ourselves for the next one. Yeah, go ahead. I wrote this little uh, bio. It's a, a, it's a fictional fictional bio of what my life could have been. And I was going to share it at the beginning, but I think I would like to close with it if you don't mind. And go ahead. All right. Um, I'm going to curse at the end. So if they're little kids, cover your it's one bad word. All right. So, hello. My name's Rico. I'm a disabled combat veteran. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a heroin user. I'm divorced. I'm homeless. I'm estranged from my kids. I'm crippled by my PTSD and my grief. I'm suicidal and I'm hopeless. And I say, fuck that. That's it. I don't know if you guys want to keep that at the end. We can decide on that later. I, th- I think it's saying... Because uh, I think everyone now has heard what your life really is, man. All right. All, all of us have got the fucking seeds of hell inside us, you know, and you've got more reason than most. And, and I say fuck that as well. Yeah, man. Well, thanks for having me on and uh, hope, it, hope it helps somebody, you know. Uh, it definitely it will. I, I guarantee it will. <laughs> Uh, and, and for the listeners, if, if this story has really connected with you, if maybe you were at the same firebase as Rico and you kind of remember some of these things that he shared, and it's always great to reconnect. I mean, whoever thought that we had, you know, uh, Ashley on the last episode connect with, a you know, in Texas, connect with a person in Riyadh, anything's possible. So uh, if you'd like to reach out to us about this story, if you'd like to get in contact or ask Rico a question or anything else in which maybe you're going through something similar, uh, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram. You can email us at pushingbackchaos at gmail.com. We can connect. We can pass along some thoughts or some questions to him. Um, You know, his whole purpose on here is to be able to help other people and, uh, there's no greater calling than your significance in helping other people. And that's something I've learned that Raph, Mellon, myself, and now Rico is on part of that. Uh, he's part of this line in which pushing back against, you know, pushing chaos back is uh, our job, you know, for the rest of our life. So uh, thank you for uh, tuning in this week. Um, and we look forward to hearing from you and take care, stay safe and uh, keep pushing back.